Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I am your host, Josh Schlossberg. Uh, we are doing something on this episode that we have never done before, and it is two guests, and I think it's going to be two times as awesome, probably. So this, we have folks from Preventing Pandemics at the Source, which is a new coalition of major health and environmental groups dealing with the overlap between environmental destruction and disease outbreaks, to put it simply. So first we have Bhavna Chilakuri, who is Director of Programs at Dahlberg Catalyst. And Bhavna spent several years at Dahlberg Advisors, where she worked in partnership with government agencies, foundations, companies, and NGOs to create better outcomes for low-income communities around the world, particularly within the realms of global health, agriculture, and nutrition. She also has a lot more in her bio that I'm not going to read right now. And then Chip Barber is Director of Forest Legality Initiative and Senior Biodiversity Advisor from World Resources Institute. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Of course, it's great to be here. Great to be here. So this topic is really, really important to me. And actually, it's what got me to start doing the podcast about a year ago. I've been a longtime environmental organizer and then pulled back from that, was an environmental journalist and then sort of pulled back on sabbatical from that. But then the pandemic happened and I had been writing about pandemic issues and environmental issues and frankly, even pandemic stuff in my horror fiction for quite some time. So I'm very aware mm -hmm. of this issue. And then when this came out again, I was like, okay, um, I'm going to get engaged once again on environmental issues. And hopefully the world is in a better place to actually see the connections. Maybe they don't care about a frog dying, but they might care about, well, they or their grandmother dying. So do you feel like and we could talk a little bit more about the, the coalition itself, but do you feel like now is a really good time for people to become more aware of just environmental issues as a whole? Absolutely. I mean, if not now, I don't know when this would happen. This is definitely um, the time for this to happen. And that's why we kind of created this coalition at this moment. Um, we've really created this uh, very broken relationship with nature that has led us exactly to this result of this pandemic. And um, yeah, there's no better time than to really kind of look at our relationship with nature and see how it affects our own health. Um, and so this, this I think is the moment and that's why um, at Catalyst, we decided to kind of bring this coalition together. It has to happen now. Great, so what is the coalition specifically and who is involved with it? Yeah, so our coalition, um, it's preventing pandemics at the source. Um, and there's about 13 organizations um, involved at this point. And, and really the goal um, is to bridge kind of the conservation world with the public health world. Um, they've sort of been working um, in different silos and the pandemic shows that they can't do that anymore. They really have to, to work together. Um, and so we're really fortunate at Catalyst to have brought together um, different organizations um, like CHIPS here, World, World Resources Institute, WWF, WCS, the Nature Conservancy, um, TN, uh, who else? Uh, there's a whole bunch of <laughs> Health and Harmony, Pivot, um, all listed on our website. And um, it's just a, a great coalition of actors dedicated to preventing pandemics at the point of spillover. Um, 
we feel that that's really missing from the conversation. We know pandemic preparedness is important. We want um, everyone to have PPP, PPE ventilators. We wanna be prepared. Um, we want vaccines to be distributed quickly and safely, but we find that just nobody's talking about how to prevent spillover in the first place. And it's gonna happen again. You know, we knew this was coming. Um, I think Josh, you mentioned, like, I'm sure you knew it was gonna happen as well. Um, people like Chip and others in our coalition knew this was coming. And so um, it's gonna happen again, right? If we don't make uh, the right types of changes around reducing deforestation, controlling wildlife trade markets, all of these different actions that we really can take uh, to prevent spillover. And so that's what we're really about, trying to figure out what are those interventions uh, that we need to invest in and how can we uh, do that so that we can prevent another COVID-19. Um, that's, that's kind of the goal of our coalition. Right, yeah, it's so important. And of course, we don't know 100% of the details of exactly the COVID transmission, but it seems pretty clear it came from somewhere in nature, whether it's bats, I guess we've dismissed the pangolin thing at this point. But the, the point remains though, this stuff originally comes from nature and it comes with our encroachment and lack of balance in nature. And forests have always been my main thing. I try to do some podcasts that don't tie into forests, but most of them tie back into forests because guess what? That's where we came from. And this topic is obviously directly related to forests. So Chip, can you talk a little bit about what we're doing in the forests and how that's literally killing us? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the issue of forests, particularly not only, but particularly tropical forests, I think, deforestation, and that has it's gone up and down. I mean, it sort of became a global issue back in the 80s. Um, we began to get on, and it was, you know, then like as now, a lot about the Amazon basin, burning going on there, and struggles between the encroachers and indigenous peoples, and people beginning to think about biodiversity and, and, and all these things. And things have gone up and down, I think, you know, over the years. And we've seen going from a lot of focus on illegal logging, people going to forests for timber and cutting them there. Now what we're seeing is, you know, much more in the last decade, wholesale uh, conversion of forests for industrial agriculture, you know, cattle, palm oil, soybeans, all those kinds of things. And um, it's begun to, to bite back in a bunch of ways. I think this last year, you've seen a lot of interesting things, like Robin was saying, um, you know, all of us have been locked down, <laughs> you know, a lot, or a lot of us have been, and paying more attention to nature. I was thinking there's a, there's a Cooper's Hawk lives outside of my house. I live in downtown Washington, D.C., and seen quite a bit this year around here and noticed how the squirrels and everything react. I don't think he just decided to come and live here because of the pandemic. I think I just never noticed that there were things like that going on because I wasn't looking at the window all the time. Things like that. And a lot of people have, you know, when all the skies cleared last spring, you know, in a lot of parts of the world, and you're able to see the Himalayas from cities in India and things like that. And when was, you know, I think there's a lot of, wow, we really have done a lot of things to this earth. And, um, you know, when you see them go away. So there's been that going on. There were all the fires, which would have been one of the big stories of the year if it wasn't for the pandemic, of course. And Australia, I've got some close friends who got pretty much burned out down there in Australia and have been working to save wildlife through all this fire stuff. They're ironically environmental activists. And, you know, and then when the pandemic, when people began to look at this, and we know it came from the reservoir of, you think of, of, of these horseshoe bat species, how it got from the horseshoe bats 
how, you know, we aren't really sure, but that's where it comes from. And, you know, there's lots of reasons, obviously, I don't have to tell you to slow the loss of tropical forests, whether you're concerned about biodiversity, whether you're concerned about the rights and livelihoods of indigenous peoples who live and take care of, you know, a lot of those things, whether you care about climate change, you know, looking at climate change mitigation. Um, but now we see that this confluence of um, forest degradation, penetration into the forest um, by humans in various ways, logging, agriculture, roads, mining, there's a lot of ways people end up in there together with the spread of livestock grazing. So you've got domesticated animals, which are a big part of this whole thing, um, and increased uh, hunting, slaughtering, eating of wildlife. When those things come together, um, that's when you get this elevated risk. You know, and the thing is that um, it's not abstract. There are particular places in the world that we can map where that is happening more than it is in other places. And there are places where we can predict that this will happen. Like if you say you're going to throw a road into a particular part of the Congo Basin, we know from 30, 40 years of this, what is the predictable results of that in terms of encroachment, in terms of forest being cut down, you know, in terms of um, unplanned settlements and, you know, all those sorts of things. And that, you know, when you have a mine, when you have, you know, a gold mine or something like that, those people hunt animals. You get more wildlife hunting and consumption goes on, you know? And so, so we're beginning to be able to map these places and be able to give this kind of triple bottom line to people and say, doesn't matter quite people maybe, if you care about indigenous rights, if you care about biodiversity, if you care about climate change, if you care about preventing the next zoonotic pandemic like this, there's a relatively small number of places on earth that are incredibly valuable for all these things. And we've got to get our act together and do something about it. So it's, these aren't new messages, you know, obviously, I, I think, but like, as you said, you know, there's like used to be Ebola and HIV AIDS and, you know, all these things that you've had these, these kind of sources, but they're coming together in a time when people are maybe sitting back and thinking a bit more about that relationship between people and nature. All that said, I will say I was in the U.S. government working on um, NAID, working on um, issues related to Southeast Asia when the uh, big tsunami happened in 2004. And places like Southern Thailand, a place I knew quite well, was completely wiped off the face of the earth. Uh, and everybody was killed. It was just, you know, and for a couple of years, there was all this build back better talk, uh, you know, in the PP Islands and other places down there. Oh, no, we're not going to do it the way it used to be. And surprise, in three years, they built it back exactly the way it used to be, you know, without, you know, much thought to what's going on. It was better over on the Indonesian side and Aceh and things like that. So part of the urgency driving this work in our coalition is we want to seize this moment and put some things in place that will keep us on the agenda in terms of political attention and finance before everyone gets vaccinated or gets, gets herd immunity. I mean, a lot of us are going to get vaccinated, you know, in the next six months, we'll probably all be vaccinated. But a lot of places, our office in Madagascar, Madagascar's got zero vaccine so far, and they're approaching herd immunity because so many people have gotten sick, and just a lot of young people there. You know, they will probably defeat this through herd immunity before anyone gets vaccinated in that country. So it's a very, it's a very um, bifurcated situation between the rich and the poor, you know, around the world that, you know, so we have to seize this moment. So I think there's a sense of urgency that we have as a, a coalition, particularly with the Biden administration coming in, focused a lot on the US policy side because decisions are being made. Large amounts of money are being allocated to things and they can go to better or worse things and there's some real opportunities to channel them in the right direction because of the focus both on climate change and on pandemics. And 
how we deal with this all build back better and you know you know agenda that was uh it's a national security directive number one right is um is the thing that came out on the first day which basically deals with a lot of these issues so that's our that's my sort of first take on that yeah well it seems like we have this narrow window because the world has such a short attention span unless something is literally happening in front of their face um mm-hmm. <laughs> people in general might not care. And certainly the government has no real reason to follow through. And it's like, well, no, you know, my constituents aren't really talking about this. This isn't going to get me reelected. Why would I do anything like that? And of course, this pattern over and over, just like um, pandemic preparedness in general, hopefully we'll be doing better, at least with dealing with stuff like that. But going to the source and the root, I call this the green root podcast for a reason to get to the root of different issues. And I feel like that is certainly this case with pandemics. Now, the complication seems like, all right, let's say in the US, which is mostly what I'm familiar with. So we're talking about deforestation. So typically it's large corporations, maybe like even a billion dollar logging industry going into maybe a national forest or on their industrial timberlands. And we can be like, ah, bad corporation, let's get them to stop. And like, okay, that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. A lot of the rest of the world, it's a little more complicated than that, right? It's not just a multinational conglomerate that's going in and and pulling out all the resources. It is often, but sometimes it's people just in poverty trying to survive. So how to make distinction between those two elements? Whoever wants to take that one. (laughs) Well, I'll just say one thing. I mean, I lived in the Philippines for eight years. I lived in Indonesia before that, and um, I don't think there's any country that's got rich, at least in the tropics, by cutting down all of its forests. I mean, I spent a lot of time in a lot of parts of the Philippines where um, people had come in, and sure, there was a lot of rich cronies and people who were taking it out, but you know, there were there were local people getting employed and getting something out of it. They didn't end up wealthier after that. They ended up in degraded places and a lot of poverty, and a lot of them working in service jobs in Hong Kong and the Middle East and things like that to support their families back home. You know, it was not, this was not a route to, uh, you know, prosperity. I mean, there are places that have, have gotten wealthy around things like palm oil, I mean, uh, you know, and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, you need to have justice in, in how you go about this. And you don't want to look a lot on illegal logging and, you know, illegal wildlife trade. You don't want to just go after the you know, the lowest person down on the totem pole because it's, they're easy to capture. I mean, you might want to catch them and get them to turn over their boss or something. That's, you know, that's how it works. But you want to go after the systemic roots of, of those problems. And um, yeah, so you find um, lots of places. I mean, the Congo Basin is a pretty good example. They've got forest degradation and deforestation problems there. There are some cases of big companies coming in and doing logging concessions, some Western, you know, recently Chinese ones. But a lot of the deforestation, we've mapped this at WI Global Forest Watch, looking at the sources of it, is more about smallholders who are going out and clearing areas because they just don't have other alternatives and things like that. But the problem is more of a rural development right. problem and dealing with people's livelihoods than it is a you know, if, if they shut down all big concessions coming in from the outside today in the DRC, it would help in some places, but it would not necessarily help in others. And the honest truth is, if you look at wildlife, I know they've been surveyed on this, there's better protection for mammals like lowland gorillas in some of the logging concessions, the better managed logging concessions 
in, in the Congo than there is in the national parks, hmm. which are kind of viewed by the elite as if private hunting is it. And things like that. So it's kind of an Alice in Wonderland, topsy turvy world. You know, it's, everything is not always exactly the way it seems. And you know, I guess that's a it's a very good point that, that you know that you're making that the context is really important. Different countries are coming with different histories, cultures, economic situations, and there's not one description which is going to work. You know, just because it works in um, Costa Rica doesn't mean it's going to work in you know in the Brazilian Amazon or something like that. Or, and you know, just because it's a solution in southeastern U.S., it's not necessarily going to work in Alaska. You know, so, so I don't know, Bob, and I'm sure I thought on this too. Yeah, just to add, um, you're you're totally right, Josh. That it's there's, I mean, deforestation is so complicated, and there's uh, lots of people engaged in it from the very large companies, and then as you said, it is, um, you know, people in in poverty that um, are just trying to feed their families and, and you know, get uh, basic things. Um, and so it's important to, to look at what we can do, um, you know, for these individuals as well. Like our, our goal in our coalition is not to, to demonize people that are honestly doing what any of us would do um, to, to provide for our own families. And so one, um, one of our coalition members, um, Health and Harmony actually, works in a couple different um, geographies and they have a model um, that's guided by what they call, you know, radical listening to um, communities um, in Indonesia, Madagascar, and I believe in the Amazon region as well. Um, and uh, they, you know, did a study where they invested about $5 million over 10 years in a medical center and a job training program um, for a community that had been, you know, engaging in uh, logging and what they saw was uh, about a 90% reduction in logging because these people were able to meet their needs through other sources. And at the same time, I think it was about a 67% reduction in infant mortality and declines over time and neglected tropical diseases. So, you know, on the healthcare front as well, um, they saw much improvement. And so it's important to, to really be creative about what solutions were we're putting in place. It's not just saying like, you know, put a ban on on logging for these communities. You have to provide alternatives um, and that these types of solutions, um, you know, there's many other One Health um, focused solutions that we're trying to come up with as part of this coalition and hopefully, you know, scale and fund um, things across the board that will help control, you know, deforestation as well as wildlife trade and markets and all of these different uh, pathways where spillover can happen. Right. And it's incredibly important, this, this listening idea, the, the original Health and Harmony program in West Kalimantan, uh, Borneo and Indonesia, very, very interesting because um, uh, I spent time, you know, in those areas and you had a lot of illegal logging going on and people weren't doing it because it's fun to hear about out with people doing this kind of stuff. It's dangerous and it doesn't pay that well. They don't pay you for the wood. They pay you uh, a, a wage. So you're just part of a crew being paid a very low wage by the boss and the boss is taking the wood out you know, and selling it. This is true of Rosewood in Madagascar as well. No one wants to do this. It's not their first choice of what they do. Often when they you start listening to people, you find out the things that they really care about are primary health care, um, you know, sources of water, you know, um, basic nutrition, um, education. You know, school fees and stuff for their kids, basic infrastructure. I'm not talking big highways, but just being, you know, you know, some boats to get up and down the river kind of thing. And, you know, things like that. It's not expensive, terribly hard things to do, but, and they're 
very willing and happy to stop going out and cutting logs for the loggers if they have another way they can do it. And setting for you know incentive system like this, like if you guys will join us in stopping the illegal logging, we'll we'll build a health clinic. You know, tell us what kind of health healthcare you need, what do you want, and you know things like that. The rub comes, I think, and we face this a lot in that. On the one hand, people say that's really important. You need to look at the community level and do all that stuff, and it's all good, you know. How do you scale that up? You know, you know, beyond a few villages, but hundreds and hundreds of things. Often, things that get scaled up. You know, World Bank is famous for this: pick some little model and say it's a great idea. Let's do it in 400 villages. And surprise, it's not just 400 times harder. It's like 4,000 times harder to do it in all those places because they're not the same. You know, all communities aren't the same, and that's kind of one of the challenges we get a lot. I think is okay, that's really good, but you know, we want to spend billions of dollars on this and solve this problem all at once. How are you going to scale that up? Right. And how, how you scale up those kind of thoughtful, just listening solutions to a scale where you can affect these larger problems. You know, Costa Rica is a wonderful example. People point to all the good stuff they've done in Costa Rica, which is true, and, and being once with someone from the state of Acre, I guess it was, in the Amazon, and someone from Costa Rica was explaining what they were doing with conservation and restoration and payments for ecosystem services. And he just laughed and he said, Do you know that my state is nine times the size of the whole country of Costa Rica? So, you know, I understand what you're doing is cool, but we're dealing with, we have like no infrastructure and it's just a vast area. You know, if we work retail like that, it's going to take us 100 years to get there, you know? And, 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 and so that's sort of one of the big challenges I think that we're facing is we do see. You know, the Biden administration saying we want to spend $20 billion in the Amazon to save the Amazon. And the big question is, 20, well, $20 billion on what? Yeah. We're going to spend it on. Um, how's that going to really affect things? And how are we going to know that we're making a difference? You know, that's, um, I mean, I came out of working in, in the State Department and USAID, so that's what we always be thinking about. You know, Congress is telling us to spend a whole lot of money on biodiversity conservation, but what the heck can we do that's actually going to work? And how can, how can we tell if it's working or not? And it's not having unintended consequences and things like that. So I think that's a, you know, it, it's a good challenge to have. There's more political focus and there's more resources. We now have to work with people who can deliver and show that we can actually show real solutions on the ground. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm on the board for an organization called Rural Watch Africa Initiative. They're in Nigeria. They're very small, but are expanding and we're getting them hooked up with a, uh, 501c3 so they can fundraise better. And that's a lot of what they're doing is they're trying to provide other alternatives for making a living whilst addressing ecological issues. So mm -hmm. they care very much about the ecology that's central, but they realize it's not separate from the poverty issues. Uh, so, but, so I have a question, you might not be able to answer in specific factoids here, but in, what is the distribution between, because it's different in every country, so just uh, just wing it, I guess, um, mm -hmm. between out of, uh, say, foreign corporations going into other countries and doing basically logging and mining and maybe ranching. I, I don't know if that's how that happens um, versus uh, corporations that are maybe in that country that are doing that stuff then versus subsistence, which also would include logging, I guess, mining, but land clearing and then the animal trade. Right. So how would we break all that down? We have a go at that, Bob, and I, I, I have a couple <laughs> ideas. But I'm, I mean, that's all you, Chip. As you said, I don't think there's a lot of good hard data that would allow you to break that up. In part because the problems are often 
kind of linked up together um, in, in the outside of forest. So I, I used to work in, in Southeast Asia on the library fish trip, cyanide fishing, people using cyanide in particular, sometimes explosives, but you know, for live fish, cyanide, catch aquarium fish or a lot of these food fish, things like that. So, and what you'd find is this is very much a local fisher. These are people who are, you know, these are just families in small communities and you know, small islands out there in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. But they're in a value chain that takes them all the way up to, you know, very luxury kind of restaurants in Southern China, Hong Kong on the one hand, not huge multinational corporations, but people who have big ships and things like that. And, you know, let's, you know, see who's the big business in Southern China. Or, you know, the aquarium trade in the United States, 80% of aquarium, you know, saltwater, you know, fish and corals in the world get, get sent to the United States. You know, so you're dealing both with a supply chain involving multinational actors and corporations, but the, the tendrils go out into all these small, local communities. And like with palm oil, you'll find this, for instance, that you can't do palm oil without a mill that you can get your fruit to in 48 hours from the time that it's cut, right? So you, just, you, know, so you can't just do smallholder stuff on your own. When you got a mill, they have, you know, they, they usually call the business the supply shed, the area that it's getting its stuff from. They may have plantations. There's going to be big plantations there. But smallholders, you know, palm oil is palm oil. So people start planting it everywhere. You know, you go in the national park, plant some palm oil, you know, you take your stuff and you stick it by the side of the road and the truck comes by every couple of days and you get paid, you know. So it's um it's supplying a lot of smallholders with with livelihood, but it couldn't happen. This is exactly the same case with um, you know, artisanal and small scale mining. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at illegal mining, you know, for gold, it's it's individuals. I've been out in some of these horrible camps and things like this. But that's not where the gold is going. The gold is being aggregated and going up and it's ending up in the same place at all ends up, you know, in the international gold economy. Um, you know, things like that. So it's a bit hard to break it up that way, I guess, that there's, 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 there's always going to be those different components. Um, I think there's some things like the wildlife trade, like ivory. You know, if you look at something like this, um, not a whole lot of domestic consumption of ivory in uh, or, you know, in, in a lot of Africa, there's not a lot of domestic consumption of rosewood, for that matter, in um, in Madagascar. When the traders aren't there buying it to send to China, they don't go out and cut it. It's really hard to cut. It's really heavy, and it's kind of hard. It's very hard to find these days, but there's not much point in it. There's other timbers they can use if they want to build a chair or something like that. Um, it's basically a, it, it's an exploitative thing that is wholly dependent on the external market demand coming in. I think that's true to a large extent. We've seen some of that with rhino horn and things like that going up and down, you know, like during the pandemic. Um, but there are other things that it doesn't really matter, like these big countries like Brazil or in India, where the domestic economy is perfectly capable of generating, you know, big predatory corporations and consuming huge amounts of resources without engaging in any kind of international market at all. I mean, if you look at the amount of domestic consumption of timber and, you know, even in a country like Cameroon or something, which has a lot of export, it's pretty high. You know, there's a there's a whole domestic dynamic going on. I mean, it's same thing in Brazil, you know? And uh, so as opposed to a country like Gabon, which is a 75% forest and pretty much has no industry at all, and except the oil industry, um, you know, companies are coming in from the outside to export timber and things like this. They just don't. I mean, you know, the Gabonese don't really need to work because they've got the oil industry. And so, you know, they will bring in workers from Cameroon and companies come in from 
Europe or China and they'll set up a logging concession or whatever they're you know doing, but it's very, very different. So you've got to kind of analyze the the fundamentals of the economy, you know, in different places to, to actually figure out, you know, like banning all exports of something from a country where most of the thing that you're concerned about is consumed domestically is not really gonna, you know, help. I mean, it might make you sleep better at night because you're not getting you know legally sourced product in say Brazil, but Brazilians will just use it. You know, so that's a that's sort of displacement problem. Um, okay, thank you for that. So the pathway directly from these animals, whatever animals they might be, to humans. So it's through eating the animals and then also just general proximity to creatures. Is that the case? It's, you know, you'll see in these wildlife markets, all these different types of wildlife in very close proximity, yeah, to one another. And um you know just cages stacked on top of each other and that's sort of a recipe um for mixing of you know viruses jumping from one species to another and then into us right and because that's the real issue it may be endemic in a particular population of animals and sometimes it may even be harmless to that particular animal or not too terrible but then it jumps over and then all of a sudden something else is unleashed now i'm not sure if you could speak to the specifics of Ebola, do we know what what that was all about? Because this is the part where we should start trying to scare people, I think. So um, how did Ebola happen, do they think? I'd have to look it up. I, I don't have this off the top of my head, but there have been some pretty good, I'm wanting to say, uh, Cameroon, that it's been tracked down pretty much to some particular species of primate in some particular places is where they're pretty sure the first jump came in the same way that after decades of research, it boiled down HIV AIDS coming out of a particular species in a particular place in 1908, where they think the first spillover was using various kinds mm -hmm. of DNA. So, I mean, they're getting better, I think, the, the techniques. I, I am by no means a scientist or a geneticist, but um, I read a lot of this stuff and you know, try to understand it as well as I can, but people have a it's, it's easier to figure that out now than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Right. And they're making some progress on that. Um, as you know, in the case of, with, um, you know, the, the novel coronavirus, it's been rather politicized. There's been this back and forth recently, you know, the World Health Organization, you know, is it, did it come out of a lab, did it jump to a pangolin and then to people? Um, you know, I mean, I've spent some time in those wildlife markets, you know, in that part of the world. and. <laughs> It always brings me back to this kid I used to see. I used to go to the market to look at the fish. But he had been selling everything. His job, he had masses of live scorpions. This was in um, Shenzhen, I think it was. Um, and his job was to take up some chopsticks and separate the big, small, and tiny scorpions, all live, with a pair of chopsticks into piles. So they get sold at a different price. Fried scorpions are a thing. Um, you know, and... He would be sitting there doing his scorpion thing, which was sort of his job after school, basically doing this. Um, was, you know, dad would be asleep there with a giant bucket of different species of frogs and turtles would be there. And there'd be cages with civets and, you know, monkeys and things like this. And then in the meantime, of course, there's lots of ducks being chopped up and slaughtered, and, you know, you know, and chickens and goats and there's blood everywhere. And it's just, you know, and there's like eating stalls and, so to be able to say, how would you track down where something came through all that stuff is fantastically difficult. It's, you know, it's 
quite chaotic and um, some of the stuff is under the table. They begin to crack down on this stuff some years ago and you have to get, get taken to the places around back where things are going on. But um, so, you know, it's, it's very difficult. I think it's easier maybe in some of these contexts and, uh, you know, where they're pretty sure that like the host is a primate and this is a primate that people hunt and they eat and then they can go back and trace into the patients and figuring it out and they can look at the, you know, at the, when they find it in the reservoir species and, you know, there are ways of figuring out, you know, when and where it jumped. And I guess our perspective on that, um, and we don't have anyone on who's one of our, we, we have a lot of sort of veterinary geeks involved in this stuff, you know, we, we talk about this is that what we can do is reduce the risk of that happening in ways that are no regrets things that we want to do anyway out there in the world. We want to reduce tropical forest degradation and deforestation. We want to reduce, um, you know, the over-exploitation of, uh, of wildlife species. There is an issue, and there's a caveat there, and it's probably one of the most sensitive issues that we deal with amongst our different membership is that, um, you know, there are people in the world who depend for protein, animal protein on hunting, you know, and they've been doing it for a long time. They started as subsistence hunters and they, they, they eat birds and mammals, you know, and, um, you know, they, as that becomes integrated into more wild, wildlife trade networks, things that were, you know, they're just off doing their thing. And it may have been that, you know, things jumped over, you know, now and then in the past, but it didn't really matter. So I said, communities of people hunting. It's so at that, when you've got that transition from subsistence to commercial trade, you know, either national, international, what are you going to do about the people who are going to, you know, really depend on this stuff for their livelihoods? And it doesn't work to just say it's subsistence because there are no, almost no pure subsistence societies left in the world. You know, there are people who were subsistence you know, are, you know, they're making a livelihood is the point by, you know, catching these animals and whether they eat them themselves or they take them to the market and they sell them and buy rice, you know, or buy, school, you know, pay for school fees, you know, it's still, it's still part of their livelihood. So you've got to find a way to make the transition in a, you know, a way that's going to be just, mm-hmm. um, you know, and also at the same time, you know, human health and veterinary health, dealing with those two things together, which is sort of, you know, the one health approach is the environment, animals, and people, all of our health is all connected and we need to find those kinds of solutions. So that's another area is how do you deliver the kinds of services, veterinary, human health, and rural development in a way that keeps, is going to help people have better lives and livelihoods. Um, and, you know, at the same time, weaning them off of these, you know, unregulated, overexploited kinds of wildlife markets that are, in some ways, a hangover from the past. You know, more of a yeah, I wanted world. to. Oh, sorry, Chip. I wanted right. to add kind of one thing on uh, your question around Ebola and sort of how that uh, spilled over. And I think and there's been a few Ebola outbreaks, and you know, bushmeat is thought to be a possible source. I know for the 2014 um, outbreak, uh, you know, scientists sort of found that it was uh, probably a little boy playing around um, a fruit tree where there were bats. And so, it, you know, spillover can happen in a situation like that. And, um, you know, it's not a massive case of deforestation or something like that, which, which shows us this is why we still need to keep investing in preparedness and all of that stuff. Of that said, we can still do so much, right, on the prevention front to given that there are 1.6 
million unknown viruses out there in birds and mammals. I think 700,000 of which are um, thought to be something that could, you know, a zoonotic uh, virus that could really hurt us as humans. And so it's really important that, you know, we're not claiming that we're gonna stop every uh, outbreak, um, but we can do so much more um, to prevent something like COVID-19. And just to your point of getting to the point of um, wanting to scare people a little bit, I think one thing is, you know, it's been such a difficult year for everybody um, across the world. And the sad truth of it is it could actually be, it could have been a lot worse um, with, with this, you know, with this coronavirus, I think the fatality rate, it's like one or two percent, right? Depending on your, your demographics, it could go up or down a little bit. Um, but there are, are zoonotic viruses out there like the Nipah virus, where it's like 40 to 75 percent fatality rate, like you get it and you're gone. Um, and so if there's a virus that spills over and it has the transmissibility of COVID-19 along with, you know, a fatality rate of something like a Nipah virus, that's really an existential threat. It's not, it's not something that we're going to be able to control easily. And so the best way uh, to address that is to prevent it in the first place. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Nipah virus thing. I actually have a study pulled up about it because I was going to mention that because that is frightening. So that's a pathogen that causes encephalitis. And like you said, 40 to 75% of human cases. So yeah, that makes COVID look like a case of the sniffles. And I think it's important for people to be aware of that because that's the, the, I mean, COVID has killed so many people. It's been terrible and I don't want to downplay that and that's not what we're doing. But mm -hmm. the fact that it hasn't been say killing as many younger, healthier people, although it has killed plenty of those, yeah. uh, but because that's not what it's perceived as doing, it's not doing as much. People are like, eh, whatever. Uh, so may maybe there's a blessing in that the ones that seem to kill uh, have a high fatality rate, they don't end up spreading as much, but it, there's it's no reason to not take this uh, seriously. And yeah, that's a perfect example of one that has been spreading and, and it's not been become a pandemic. And I, I guess there's been, I don't even know if there's been quote epidemics, but like some outbreaks, localized outbreaks, things like uh, MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory System, or uh, syndrome as well. And there are countless others as well. So yeah, people are like, oh, well, so we get another COVID big deal. Well, first of all, yeah, big deal. Clearly the world, yeah. <laughs> we stopped the world almost for, for a year. Um, but yeah, I, I do think the point is we have a narrow window of time where people forget about this otherwise. And so I noticed there is a letter that was sent to members of Congress in February from the Preventing Pandemics at the Source uh, Coalition. And I could read a little bit from that, or can you, are you well-versed enough to talk about what that letter was about, either of you? Yeah, we're happy to talk about the letter. Um, yeah, we, uh, our coalition kind of crafted an open letter to Congress in February, um, highlighting the importance of, of prevention and asking them to kind of include it in um, the next COVID relief package. I'm sure there will be probably another one. Um, there was just one um, session, I believe last month where they discussed a relief package. Um, 
But yeah, calling for prevention to be included and specifically calling for $2.5 billion in seed funding for you know, catalytic financing um, in the form of a global fund for pandemic prevention. Um, the US has lost a lot of people uh, to COVID-19. It's been you know, very difficult uh, for this country um, for a lot of reasons. It's, you know, as Chip mentioned earlier, it's been so politicized and we just haven't handled it um, correctly. And so, you know, the same way um, the U.S. kind of took a lot of leadership in creating the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and malaria, we want to see that same leadership on pandemic prevention. We obviously have a lot to lose um, just with the, the way that we've run the response, like states doing all sorts of different things. It's been kind of a disaster. And so again, our, our best bet is to just make sure this doesn't happen again. And to do that, we have to um, you know, help other countries invest in prevention because we don't have uh, you know, these types of tropical forests in the US. We have to um, help pay for you know, these resources. We all benefit from the things that the Amazon rainforest provides to planet Earth. We all you know, need it. And so we should be um, helping other countries um, preserve these resources because it's going to come come back to us. And so that's really what we talk about in this open letter, um, just the need for the U.S. to take to take leadership here and learn from this terrible, terrible year and make sure this doesn't happen again. And how's been how's the response been from our illustrious members of Congress thus far? I mean, I think there is a lot of openness um, to hearing about this from uh, both sides, um, both Democrats and Republicans. Um, you know, our coalition um, has met with uh, several different um, uh, senators, representatives, and, you know, we're hearing a lot of good feedback. And um, we're also uh, working to get our message in front of the Biden-Harris administration as well. And so we hope, um, you know, there's, I, I think about seven different bills on the floor related to in some way to pandemic prevention, whether it's wildlife trade or, or something else. And so there is um, movement, but um, yeah, I think time will tell whether we can actually get such a global fund off the ground. I think prevention is really hard. Like, as you said, people don't like to do it because, uh, uh, you know, it, you don't really the best result is that nothing happens with prevention, right? Um, and so that's what we're going for. Um, but we have been, um, it's been good to kind of see the willingness to meet with our coalition and discuss this issue. So I think we're hopeful there. Yeah, and I think there's some back and forth between Capitol Hill and the administration. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's obviously um, a lot of, money floating around in terms of what's being allocated and the different bills that are being talked about. But so you tend to find not opposition to the idea at all. In fact, quite the, you know, I think the idea that this is sort of a double or triple winner on a number of issues that people in capitalism care about, you know, climate change is very um, partisan and polarized, but wildlife and tropical forests are not. That's something that there's been strong bipartisan support I used to follow this a lot when I was in the government because it was our budgets, you know, and it, it didn't matter if it was Republicans in charge or the Democrats. It's like, you know, saving the great apes or, you know, things like that. Fighting tropical deforestation always has had a uh, pretty decent constituency there. 
And so, so it's not a problem making that argument. I think it's been more a case of that, well, you know, we're moving very large amounts of money and very big chunks here very quickly to get this through. And what um, we're really waiting for in terms of the specifics is we're going to take the lead from the administration. Now, the administration, of course, is still getting itself staffed up. They're, they're you know, they're very new. Some of the key people aren't, aren't in place yet. So they tend to be painting with great, with quick, broad brush strokes as well themselves. You know, for instance, um, in the context, I was going back and forth with some people in our UK office about, um, so April 22nd is this big Earth Day climate summit that um, President Biden is convening in Washington with heads of state. Uh, I don't know how much it will be in person or, or virtual. Um, one of the things that is expected to roll out in advance of that then is what is the plan for the $20 billion that was pledged during the campaign for the Amazon? And a lot of ideas popping around. So there's a lot of people, a lot of my former colleagues in government are being all scratching their heads. Everything from you know, National Intelligence Council, the USAID, the State Department, you know, are being told, give us some answers. What are we going to do? And you got to come up with a, you know, something to do, and you've all got to be part of it. You know, how do you fit into this? And um, so it's still kind of early days to a certain extent, but on, on the other hand, there's an urgency because decisions are being made about, you know, money's going, you know, here and there. Mm -hmm. the, the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria, it's interesting, um, I have a friend who uh, we both know actually, um, who is, is working there on one of their big committees. Um, and a personal friend of mine and a former professor, Bavis, um, talking to her about this because she does a lot of the technical stuff for the global fund and um you know they are scratching their heads about how do they adapt to a world in which it's not just AIDS, TB, and malaria but all these emerging zoonotic infectious diseases and is this something they should take on as part of their mandate you know is that mission creep and outside of you know they've had some quite notable successes by being focused um, but then other people are saying, well, there's this other thing, and you guys are a good model for doing things. And it's that scaling question again. It's like, well, we're a good model around those particular diseases because we designed ourselves around those. You're talking about something rather different here, you know, that is, is, is maybe more of a WHO kind of thing to do in terms of, you know, containment, you know, surveillance and things like this. And the prevention gets into a whole other range, which is really more on the dealing with natural resources management, conservation, you know, and wildlife trafficking. So I think that, you know, we're in a new world and people talk about build back better and, you know, do this and that, but people are still really trying to figure out what that means and what's the best way to go forward. And the rough transition from the previous administration to this administration and the um, rapidity of what's, you know, been happening here and, you know, in terms of the, you know, American recovery after all that kind of stuff is I think got everyone kind of staying up late and scratching their heads and figuring out what to do. So. We have focused quite a bit on on the U.S. landscape. That wasn't I think that wasn't necessarily the original intention. I wasn't around when you guys formed it, formed this, but because these opportunities just popped up, I'd say a large amount of our effort has been over the last couple of months getting in the game and you know doing that. And you know there are there are other organizations and coalitions who are who are, who are pulling in the same direction as well. I mean, from some more from the wildlife side, some more from the health side. Um, but you know, it seems like it's a, it's a relatively consistent message. It's getting over that hump of people understanding that you can't just deal with these things after the diseases have spilled over from the animal kingdom to people. So you know, surveillance and containment and all that's super important. You know, but you'll have to do less surveillance and containment if we can try to reduce the risk. 
right. to begin with. And it's and it's a no regret kind of thing to do. But that's sometimes a hard message to get across. It's been very instructive to me coming out of an organization that works on environment development and uh, but not public health. And um, working with people who come out of public health side and really haven't thought about some of these you know, issues you know, about forests so much, they may personally care about it, that, you know, I suddenly realized, I don't know anything at all about this stuff. You know, I'm learning. And, and they're also, I think, seeing, gee, it's a lot more complicated on the environmental side than we thought. You know, we thought that, you know, you guys are wildlife fund and et cetera. You can just solve this problem, right? And it's like, well, no, it's complicated, <laughs> you know, on this side. And there's, there are differences of opinion about how to go forward. That's the best thing to do, it's, you know, you know around these issues. So I, I think only good can come out of putting those two camps of people and schools of thought together. It's not always completely smooth because you're trying to learn to speak other people's languages and find out where that common ground is. But I think that that's solving these new problems that, that the world is throwing at us. We're going to have to pull together that way and you know find ways to work together across these disciplines and right. interests. So hopefully that's what we'll be able to do. Yeah, yeah. So I look at the whole thing. It's that bathtub analogy, right? Where you got the bathtub overspilling, let's say that's pandemics, diseases. And then we're kind of like taking towels and we're like, oh, let's just keep sopping it up. It's like, let's turn off the faucet. Come on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's, 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 have there been any have there been any champions in Congress who have emerged, or is there not enough uh, benefit for them to to do so or not enough pushback? Uh, for not doing so thus far? I think we're still probably trying to figure out who who could uh, serve in that role. There's nobody um, specific that is coming up for me as like, yes, this person is mm -hmm. going to really help us. Um, but we're hoping to, we have kind of a subgroup in the coalition working specifically on US policy. Um, and they're working really hard on trying to create those champions. And so we hope for that to happen in the next couple months. Right. Yeah. Well, I, because it crosses a lot of boundaries, I think. So it's like it's in you know different committees and things like this. And you've got people who are very sympathetic to one or another piece of the agenda. But there isn't any like when I first started working on this stuff in the early 90s, Al Gore was like our senator on climate change. Came over to the office all the time. This is my first time around, you know, at WI. We can count on him to be the spokesperson, you know, book coming out and everything like that. We don't have someone like that who's really taken this particular issue on as their flagship thing they're going to put on their website, you know, and, and push it. But there's a lot of interest from a lot of different folks across mm -hmm. the uh, across the spectrum. Well, hopefully more folks do get engaged with that on the congressional level. I think every environmental group should be engaging in, if it's not your coalition on this issue, I think that's instrumental. I think if you're working on environmental issues, and you're not tying it into this. I think there's something missing. Just likewise, uh, folks who have been in my former field of environmental journalism, I think can do a bit better job of covering this stuff. And frankly, I don't think members of Congress are gonna do much until there is pressure. And so I think that pressure can be put on by environmental groups and, and media outlets. And then of course, that's the source thing. Of course, then there's all these other things we could do with public health that doesn't seem to be happening. Like I've literally not heard anyone say anything about mandated hospital reporting around the world. Um, I've, I've never even heard anyone say that. That seems pretty basic. Like any weird thing that happens, yeah. you are you are required or there will be sanctions if you do not. Uh, but yeah, if we keep having this stuff coming out of the forest, that end of things is meaningless. We have to do all of the exactly. above. It's not it an either It has to or. be all of the above. That's exactly right. Oh, yeah, and, that, and I think, 
the WHO is working on that, right? Like there has to be, you have to tell us if something happens. Um, and that's why, for example, I think in India, there was a Nipah virus outbreak and very quickly controlled because they followed all those procedures of reporting it very quickly and worked with the WHO. But that has to happen everywhere with everything. And at the same time, as you said, we have to turn off the faucet. Like the health system cannot manage um, without the environmental side kind of doing uh, its part. And so it's really working together. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's where the intelligence community could usefully come in facing, you know, a new global security challenge here in terms of gathering and that information and sharing it both between countries and amongst the agencies, you know, in the U.S. if they're looking for what we're trying to tell them, if they're looking for new jobs, this is one that has, uh, would be quite useful to have some, you know, analysts using all the powers that they bring to bear to understand exactly that. where are there anomalies popping up? Where are there issues that we should be getting at before they become crises, you know, as, as it relates to genetic disease? Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, it seems like most of this stuff is coming from potential forest issues, but factory farming is also clearly a uh, major vector. It's thought that H1N1, which kind of put all this stuff on the map for me and started my, uh, mm -hmm. that's where I started losing my hair. It, it Basically, they think it came from factory farming. Uh, don't know for a fact, but it, I think that's what they assume. So the U.S. Mm -hmm. is, is definitely doing a lot of that. Maybe we don't have as much of the other issues because we don't have that type of wildlife because we've, we've gotten rid of most of our, our forests. But do you see that as a component as well? Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought that up because we we do have a problem with that here. And I think we're even starting to export factory farming to other nations, right? Other places are starting to do it and we kind of let on that. And it's it's very harmful. Um, and so this is not just a oh, tropical countries need to fix their their stuff. Like we have a lot of work to do here in the US too um, on factory farming. And so that, um, yeah, safe livestock, safe and sustainable livestock production, um, we need to, to have that to reduce spillover risk as well. And, as well. and that's something we're gonna be looking at um, in our coalition as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and in my organization, we, we, we go beyond that to basically a big focus on our food program and shifting diets and more plant-based diets and basically and not just talking about it as a personal lifestyle choice, but as an actual, you know, economic and social and policy direction that countries should be heading in. Even in China, you're talking about this, you know, that, you know, this is not just about, it's, it's a healthier diet and it's, you know, cool to animals and things that are important to a lot of people, but that this needs to be a systemic shift in how we feed ourselves. If we're going to feed 9 billion people by 2050 and do it in a way that doesn't destroy the earth, spread disease, you know, and things like this. It's not just how we produce things, but what we, how do you make that transition? So, you know, that's, that's a whole other topic, but um, you're interested in doing a podcast about that. I got lots of colleagues who will tell you all about those, those kinds of things. But um, yeah, I think we've focused more on the immediate, there's that tropical forest kind of thing. But um, I think it's an area that as you begin to speak with other countries, you know, they sort of say, so, okay, once again, you're blaming us, the tropical developing countries for all these bloody diseases, but you guys also have your own problems there. And you're actually exporting these production systems to us as well. It's, you know, it's, uh, you know, so I, you know, I think there, there's, a, there's some of the walk the talk stuff that needs to happen there if we're, you know, try to, you know, 
more developed countries try and take a leadership role on this, we have to show that we're cleaning up our own air. Right. Well, my hope, and I'm sure the hope of many, is that all the deaths and all the short and long-term health impacts from COVID, it will prevent countless future deaths because now we might have more of an awareness and more of a desire to deal with this stuff at the source, the stuff that you all are working on, and then just an understanding and more of a consciousness that when we don't find a balance with nature, it bites back eventually. So we can't just pretend to think, oh, you know, that's just like a background. It's just like a movie background. It's like, no, we're, we're a part of it and we can't go on ignoring this stuff. So I really thank you both for coming on the podcast and for all the work that you're doing. And I just want to mention, I'll have it in the description, but the the link to the website preventing pandemics at the source is preventingfuturepandemics.org. Definitely encourage you to check it out. Uh, any uh, last words for Green Root Podcast listeners? Yeah, just thank you um, so much, Josh, for having us on. I think two last things I want to mention I, that I don't think we got to is that um, I think you know coalition members of ours have done some research around what this costs, and it's about 20 billion a year um, to invest in prevention. It seems like a lot, but when you compare it to the trillions, right, that we've lost um, because of this pandemic and not to mention things that we can't put a price on, right? Like mental health, um, people's lives, years of education for our kids, all of these things, it's nothing, right? It's a no brainer. And so we really hope um, that everyone listening is, you know, can get on board with prevention and just shout about it in whatever way that you can. Um, and lastly, just want to thank our um, coalition members, um, uh, which are Conservation International, EcoHealth Alliance, um, Harvard, Rainforest Alliance, Right to Health Action, WCS, WWF, WRI, Pivot, and TNC. Um, and then Health and Harmony as well. Um, it's such a great group of organizations working together. We really appreciate um, all the work that these members are putting in. Um, so just, yeah, thank you for having us on and giving us the opportunity to talk about this. We really appreciate it. Of course, of course, this was really great. Well, you both take care. Thanks very much, Josh. appreciate it. Thanks for having us. <laughs>